Hey guys, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf speaking. And this is Andreas Steno speaking. As you already know, this is the most actionable macro trading floor in the world. And uh, what a week it has been, not least in geopolitics. Uh, so we look forward to today's guest, uh, probably one of the very best geopolitical strategists in the world, if you ask me. Great, great guy. But uh, before we get to the political chatter, Let's take a look at what's happening uh, in the global asset markets. Uh, Alf, you've been pretty vocal in recent days that you find some interesting things happening beneath the surface in the bond market. Why don't you give us a brief overview of what's going on? Yeah, let's do that, Andreas. I see three areas of interest, really. Over the last month, there have been some interesting moves in the US, bond market also in the European. So the three angles are um, what the market is pricing as a path for future Fed funds rates, uh, the second is the curve slopes, and the third is implied volatility. So if you look at what the market is pricing now for the future Fed, Fed funds, uh, people are getting obsessed about this pivot story. But if I look actually at what the OIS curve is pricing and the forwards, it looks to me more like a long pause is becoming the bond market base case. So we're looking at peak Fed funds at 4.9% in six months from now. But then if I look at the end of 2023 or Q1 2024, I still see rates priced way above 4%. What pivot is that? 4% is still a relatively restrictive territory of Fed funds. If you want to have a look at the real pivot, you go back in 2001 when the Fed cut rates from 65 to 2% in a single year. That's a pivot not cutting rates from five to four and keeping them there for 15, 18 months. That's a long pause. And interestingly, that's also reflected in the volatility space, where if I look at bond market volatility, uh, one year volatility priced in for two, five and 10 year rates have collapsed by over 20 basis points, which is a meaningful standard deviation move over the last month. I mean, it makes sense, Andreas, if Powell is going to be more predictable about this monetary policy is going to pause. That's going to be the base case. Then bond market volatility can also come down a bit. And that really correlates well with risk assets, where obviously a lower bond market volatility causes less trouble to any diversified portfolio, makes people a bit more willing on the margin to take some risks, which we have seen happening in credits, in equities, in a lower dollar. So what's your take of, um, of this risk market rally? I mean, first of all, let me just add on that Federal Reserve pricing that I think the market has basically received the message from the Federal Reserve, both um, via sources, but also via the official statements. It's pretty clear that they want the market to at least perceive them to be higher for longer, right? Um, and so far, so good. Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually pretty damn good work by the Fed, if you ask me, because it's usually very tricky. Uh, to get the market to accept a pause in a yield curve, either the market bets on one direction or the other all the time. Uh, so, so damn good work by the Fed, uh, if, if you ask me. But if you look at this risk rally, I mean, I, I, um, I tweeted the other day, I simply don't see a 7% intraday move in NASDAQ as the kind of price action I would like to see to be convinced that this is a new bull market. Um, but then a lot of people started telling me that it actually happened um, in the dot-com. It happened uh, at the worst of the Lehman crisis, etc. as well. So I guess it goes to show that there is still extreme uncertainty in positioning. Uh, and just a glimpse of hope in one inflation report, 
um, basically propels everybody in the same direction. Um, now suddenly we need to buy all the shit we bought in 2020 and 2021 again, apparently. Uh, even ARK is performing like crazy, right? So my point here is that if inflation is settling around 4 to 5%, that's what looks like a base case to me on my forward-looking indicators for inflation. Then I struggle to see why we should salute this disinflation as if it was a 2020-2021 all over again. Um, so I've, I have to admit that I've been caught wrong-footed in this rally, uh, but I still consider it a false flag. I don't know whether you... Yeah, so Andreas, the thing that I look at is that there is an institutional seasonal behavior here that I discussed as well on the macro compass where basically if you are a manager and your bonus is linked to your performance this year you either made a lot of money being short so your worst case scenario is a bear market rally and you're going to hedge for it you're actually going to buy upside calls you're going to make sure your bonus stays good until year end if there is a bear market rally otherwise you sucked as a portfolio manager and then you're going with your ave maria at the last minute trying to buy any convex payoff you can have so that basically announces and makes sure that people chase this rally up which is what we have seen but with smb say in the 4,4100 level let's make some simple calculations andres and say that earnings per share next year it's not going to grow. It's not going to be a massive recession. It's not going to grow 10%. It's going to be flat. Okay, let's assume that. So that's roughly 220 EPS. At 4,000, 4,100, you're buying basically uh, at roughly 18 times forward valuations. And looking at this EPS. And if I basically do that on an earnings yield basis, I'm looking at buying equities at roughly a five five and a half percent earnings yield while the federal reserve has promised you that the risk-free rates will be in the four and a half percent area minimum for quite a while so you're literally buying equities at an earnings yield that is roughly the same one can say to risk-free rates in an environment that is full of uncertainties and definitely during an economic slowdown so i think the air becomes pretty thin in general for equities above 4,000, clearly it can extend further. Um, anything becomes a bit irrational um, in markets for a, a small period of time. But it's hard to see, really, especially if inflation remains around 4%, as you said, at least for the first half of next year. Mm. It's really hard to see uh, why it makes a lot of sense to really chase these 2021 um, scenarios. But I am... Um... You know, I love charts with two time series uh, on two axes. <laughs> uh, I know it's um, kind of bullshit to do those charts. But anyway, um, the thing I wanted to mention um, is that if you look at PMIs historically, relative to the risk premium spread between equities and yields, yeah. bond yields, right? Then if ISM, to take the US example, goes sub 40, you would expect the equity risk premium to widen at least two and a half to three percentage points relative yeah. to the bond market. And we haven't seen that at all. Not at all. Um, so, so to me, the best trade right now is simply just to bet on that risk premium spread widening. Uh, so, so short equities relative to being long bonds on a risk premium um, weighted basis. I love that trade. It's a bit complicated to implement. So is mm. it volatility adjusted, beta adjusted? Uh, it's a bit complicated, but in principle, if you're an asset allocator and you have a portfolio in front of you, I would say at this juncture of the macro cycle, it would make sense to try and think about how do I um, 
overweight fixed income relative to my equity exposure in a relative basis. Mm. I think it could make sense to look at it. But Andreas, for the last five minutes of this intro, I want to chat with you about the elephant in the room for this week, which is what the heck is going on in crypto? Oh, I, I thought you were, were about to mention that Italy is not part of the World Cup starting this weekend. <laughs> uh, let's stop the episode now. I don't want to talk to this guy anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. But um, talking about crypto, um, it, it, I was actually at the Caribbean islands uh, when all this shit unfolded with the FGX. Uh, so it was pretty amazing to watch it live. Uh, and I, I, I mean, right now it feels like a house of cars, cards, doesn't it? Um, we have new messages every day from a new exchange. Um, and I mean, the latest uh, story that has been unfolding is the story around Genesis. Yeah. Uh, so the lender of Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies um, being in trouble uh, as a consequence of exposures uh, to, um, to some of these exchanges already um, taken down. So uh, it, it seems as if the contagion is relatively already and if genesis falls then i think the contagion will prove to be much bigger than what we've already seen since it is a margin lending product basically right um so that makes matters worse than just scrapping the money at an exchange um and yeah I, I frankly don't really see any good news right now um hopefully this will ultimately end up showing what's good and what's not good in this sector. Andreas, I mean, the moment of pause I took is just to, I remember in uh, March or February, I tweeted something out, which was uh, when you guys think about your money and the safety of your money, think about whose liability is your money. Sounds, sounds complex, but really isn't. So if you buy a treasury bond, whose liability is your investment? It's the government's liability. Okay. So in our credit system, it's the closest risk-free thing you can have as a form of money. You can put money in a bank, and in a bank up until the FDIC insurance or the European insurance scheme, you are kind of also having the liability of the government, right? If the bank goes belly up, the government's going to bail you out, supposedly. Above those amounts, you your money is a liability of a commercial bank. So if the bank goes belly up, I'm sorry, but the money is gone. If your money is a liability of FTX... I'm sorry, but like people have put the entire net worth and their life savings in there. And it's incredible. Like this is, this makes me really think about the lack of proper financial education about how our monetary system works. And it makes me sad, really. I, I mean, I just wanted to add that. Look at the list of investors in FTX just this January. Jeez we have Paul Tudor Jones. We have Alan Howard. Um, and I mean... The amount of video clips with, um, for example, Caroline Ellison, uh, the head of Alameda Research, um, showcasing that she had no fucking clue at all. <laughs> um, it, it amazes me that such people bought into this story, but uh, it's easy to say in hindsight, obviously. That's true, that's true. So rather than you know looking at who lost money investing in FTX, for me it was more about yeah. people who lost their life savings because they left their money there think it was safe and it's the liability of a crypto exchange which in some cases might be a, a very solid institution but all your life savings into basically putting your money as a form of an unsecured liability of a crypto exchange or any exchange actually mm -hmm. i don't think it's a very smart thing to do no. but okay a sad story andreas and let's hope the house of card doesn't really reverberate very badly um and you know there is there is there are always cycles in macro and in markets there are always cycles but it 
let's hope it doesn't turn into a bloodbath for people who have uh, been uh, reckless in this. <laughs> but um, speaking of bloodbaths, um, a few days ago we feared World War III when that missile hit <laughs> Polish territory. Um, <laughs> thankfully, we know today, uh, Friday the 18th of November, that uh, it probably isn't the World War III commencing now. But um, in any case, I think we should talk a little bit about geopolitics because it matters a lot right now. So let's yeah. bring the guest on the floor. It's my pleasure to introduce the guest of the week on the macro trading floor. His name is Jacob Shapiro. He's the partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Jacob, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, when, when you guys reached out yesterday, it looked like we might be on the verge of World War III, but things seem a little calmer today, so I'm, I'm feeling good. <laughs> Jacob, let's start um, with a question around that um, potential World War III. Uh, I mean, yesterday uh, we had a few headlines around a, uh, a few people uh, getting killed in Poland uh, by a, uh, a missile. And um, at first glance, I mean, the Russians uh, got the blame, but... Now, the day after, we, we know that it was probably an accident. Did you at any point sort of fear this um, World War III scenario yesterday? Or did you uh, look at it with um, the utmost calm? <laughs> uh, I, I was fairly calm. I mean, so to, to, get, to give you a little bit of perspective here, I, I did not think that Russia was going to invade Ukraine earlier this year. I didn't get that right at all. Um, so at that point, I've kind of I reassessed all of my assumptions about Russia before, because my entire argument about Russia not invading Ukraine was that it wasn't in their interest in Ukraine and that there was no possible way they could win. I ended up being right that there was no possible way that they could win. But I had my my calculation of what Russia thought its interests were and what Vladimir Putin thought Russia's interests were was wrong at the beginning of the year. So. I didn't react with much fear or trepidation when this news broke the wires, but in the back of my head, I was also thinking, you've underestimated Putin before, you thought he was rational when he wasn't before, is this another time? Um, I'll also say that um, it didn't seem like it was an accident to me because Russia did bomb a bunch of Ukrainian cities earlier that day, and um, the town, the Polish town, which I won't even try to butcher the pronunciation of, it's like a two hours drive from Lviv, which is you know not that far away and is in Ukraine itself. So it seemed clear that some, it, it was probably something had to do with Russia, um, but you know there just wasn't a lot of information out there, and I saw a lot of people jumped to conclusions based on unnamed U.S. intel official tells, you know, whatever news source. And whenever I see that, I don't pay any attention to it. I wanted to wait to see what actually came out. And what actually came out was that it looks like it was a Ukrainian air defense missile. So, you know, it's sort of Russia's fault in the end here. Um, but it wasn't that Russia was attacking Poland in any meaningful way. And I, I guess the way I'll finish the question is, I don't expect Russia to attack Poland in any meaningful way, because if Russia attacks Poland, uh, it's basically the end of Russia. The Poles have been chomping at the bit to go after Belarus and do whatever they want at, uh, already. So if you get NATO behind Poland, which has been wanting to do this for a while anyway, I mean, Russia can't even win the, the, the conflict in Ukraine, let alone picking a fight with NATO. So for all those reasons, I was, I was not so worried about it, but you got to stop and pay attention when something that weird happens. Uh, Jacob, I I, um, I wanted to ask you a question in relation to Donald Trump announcing his uh, candidature for um, the next election again. Mm. Um, I mean, let's not spend too much time on Donald Trump. I think both you and I agree that he doesn't stand a big chance of, of uh, getting uh, elected. But what I wanted to ask you about um, is the relation between China and the U.S. Uh, Donald Trump 
obviously got known for his trade war uh, against China, but we've had the G20 meeting this week. And as far as I can see, it seems as if, as if there is a bit of softening of the rhetoric between Xi and Joe Biden. What's your take on the U.S.-Chinese relations and what happened at the G20 meeting at Bali? There was a very, very gradual, subtle softening in the language. If you look at Chinese media, they covered it um, more nicely than you would have expected. Uh, but for me, the recent U.S. semiconductor restrictions make any of that window dressing rel uh, basically irrelevant. Um, the Biden restrictions on semiconductors are more serious than anything Donald Trump did during his trade war with China and are more serious than anything Obama did uh, in his relations with China. And Obama did a couple things. We forget that Obama sort of used a couple protectionist trade measures against China. I'd even argue the trade war starts um, in the Obama administration and Trump just took it to another degree. So as long as those sort of trade restrictions are coming through and I hear things that even more could be coming through kind of down the pipeline. Um, it's great that Xi Jinping and Biden are talking to each other. It's nice that they're, that, that, that those channels of communication are open so that there's going to be less chance of a miscommunication in, say, the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea. That's really good. And that's one of the things Biden promised when he came into office. He said, we're going to take away the unpredictability of my predecessor. China's going to know who to call when they have some kind of problem. They're worried about something spinning out of control. We want to compete, but we don't want to confront with them. So in that sense, it's positive. But I wouldn't say that anything has meaningful changed in the U.S.-China relationship. The last thing I'll just say about this is that's not what Biden wanted. If you go back to June and July, the White House was leaking to every single media outlet that it could that they were considering getting rid of some of the Trump um, trade restrictions and tariffs and things like that. You could feel this battle between the China hawks and the China doves within the Biden White House. And what changed was Nancy Pelosi decided she felt she needed to go visit Taiwan over and above the objections of the White House. And when that happened, the hawks won. So suddenly, you know, you go from, hey, can we have a temporary reprieve with China to maybe drive down supply side factors in inflation to a fully fledged Taiwan Strait crisis and these semiconductor restrictions and everything that followed after it. So it's nice that Biden and Xi are talking. It does nothing to change um, what I think is the most consequential um, salvo in the trade war, thus, trade war thus far, and which I think will have broader implications in the global economy for years to come. Excellent insights, Jacob, on the semiconductor story between China and the U.S. I think it's largely underreported as well uh, within the financial markets and how relevant it is for global growth and this trade war, basically long-term trade war between China and the U.S. As we're talking about China, and it seems you're very knowledgeable on the topic, may I ask for your take on what's the incentive scheme for the Chinese Communist Party, whether to reopen the economy, when to reopen the economy? How is that going to work? We're talking about reopenings and yet reported cases, whatever that means in China, are um, skyrocketing to new highs. So how do you see that unfolding in 2023? I just want to say one thing on semis before before I answer that question, which is we also have a tendency to make this just about the U.S. and China. In some ways, the biggest news that's happened to me in the last week was the Japanese government, along with eight Japanese companies, came out at the end of last week and said, we are going to create a Japanese semiconductor champion. We want to be self-sufficient in a lot of semiconductors via this champion by 2027. So you start to look around, you're looking at a lot of these different countries that are parts of the semiconductor supply chain, that they can see the writing on the wall, they're making their own moves to secure their semiconductor supply chains. Because of how sophisticated and technical that supply chain is, it's going to take years. 
Um, but I think you're, you're headed towards a place where we're getting this multifurcation of the global semiconductor supply chain, and that'll bleed in other places. Um, in terms of the, the incentive structure for reopening, so I was very skeptical uh, of the rumors about reopening from the beginning. I'm still very skeptical. It doesn't seem to me that China meaningfully has changed um, its zero COVID policies. It's, it's changing some things around the edges. It's making it a little bit easier for expats uh, to go in and out of China. But when you actually look at zero COVID, it doesn't seem to me that things are changing that much. Um, I think there's been a lot of consternation about why China is so attached to zero COVID. The best way I can explain this is, first of all, all of us were zero COVID two years ago. It's just that China hasn't given up uh, controlling the virus. The rest of us have just given up. I just had COVID three weeks ago. Like We're just stuck with it for the rest of our lives. China hasn't given up quite yet, um, and that's not something that is outside of our frame of reference. I think most people would have felt that way even maybe 12 months ago. So there's that. The other thing is that China does not have a great healthcare system. They have not been able to create a vaccine of their own that is effective relative to other vaccines. For all the talk of China being an authoritarian, totalitarian regime, uh, an abysmally low percentage of elderly Chinese folks have gotten the Chinese vaccine, which I wouldn't want a Chinese vaccine either based on the data that's coming out, but the Chinese government can't even get the shots in the arms of their own people for all the powers that, and tools that they have at their disposal. This is also a country that where you know you respect your elders, that's part of the culture, and it had a one China policy uh, going back many, many decades. So imagine you're a country of only children and a, a surge of COVID cases means you're overwhelming the hospitals such that your vaulted elders are dying in the streets because the Chinese government isn't there from a healthcare perspective. I think that's the social stability threat that Xi Jinping sees and why he is so scared of COVID kind of spinning out of control. Um, I think the, the difficult thing that Xi is facing is I don't think he wants to change his zero COVID protocols at all. His hand might be forced, though, by the virus itself. So the only other country that tried uh, to, 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 um, to keep COVID in check as long as China had was Vietnam. And they did a pretty good job until last summer. And then one of the new strains was simply too contagious and too virulent for the Vietnamese authorities to do anything with. And they basically had to give up. And companies that had supply chains in Vietnam were screwed for six to eight weeks. And everybody was, oh, my God, Vietnam is, you know, it's, it's running out of juice. Um, so a couple of things that I've seen in China, you know, some of these labs are running out of COVID-19 tests. So they're not able to test at the same levels that they were before. You're seeing in Guangzhou and some of these other places, uh, the actual population is not happy with the restrictions. They're tired of this sort of heavy handedness. And then last, um, you know, when uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was in uh, China, was that last week? Space and time have all completely warped on me. I think that was last week. Um, and he talked about getting approval for BioNTech and Pfizer shot for expats in China. So maybe that's a step towards an actual effective vaccine being available in China. So the I'm rambling a little bit, but the, the sort of too long, didn't read uh, thing that I'm trying to say here is that I don't think Xi in China is going to relax zero COVID. I do think, however, that these variants and sort of the, the pervasiveness of COVID in the global um, economy in general means that eventually China's not going to have a choice. They're going to have to give up. Um, and these spiking cases in some of these cities that China's um, restrictions are not able to control suggest that maybe we're at that sort of Vietnam tipping moment for China. I'm, I'm not willing to say that quite yet, but we're starting to get in range. Jacob, now that we are talking about China, we obviously also need to touch upon the topic of deglobalization. I, um, I listened to a bunch of quarterly earnings calls, um, and I think it's fair to say that the average CEO talks a lot about deglobalization, but as far as I can see, they don't do a lot yet. Um, so is it an actual trend 
or is it just something that we talk about so far, this deglobalization trend? It's absolutely a trend. It's in its very early stages. So we're, we're not even close to what deglobalization is really going to look like. The other thing that I would put in your mind there is that deglobalization is not unidirectional. So just because the world is deglobalizing doesn't mean that you aren't going to have economic blocks where you actually get more integration within them. So the way I see the world is we're heading towards a multipolar world with different competing power centers and economic centers around the world. And within different spheres of influence, you might actually see more integration. So for instance, North and South America led by the United States, I would expect to see more quote unquote globalization between the United States and Latin America. Within China's sphere of influence, countries that sign on for the Belt and Road Initiative, they're looking especially at Central Asia, parts of Southeast Asia, Pakistan, those countries that sign on for that, you'll see more integration with the Chinese economy. So there is deglobalization at the very top level, and that's most disruptive for you know, companies that live in a world of comparative advantage and where, you know, Taiwan is the fab for the semiconductors and South Korea does memory and Japan does photo, like, all that's going to go away. And companies that have been de dependent on those global supply chains are going to have to figure out, okay, like that market doesn't work anymore or this um, operating environment doesn't work for my manufacturing plants. Like all that's going to be in there. But it's not like we're all building walls around our countries and that's it. It's, it's a little more nuanced than that. But in terms of, yes, we're absolutely moving towards deglobalization. The best example, I mean, there are two examples I can give to your listeners for this. Number one, just look at a chart of interest rates in the United States, China, and the European Union for the last 20 years. You'll notice that they all start to diverge right around the time of the pandemic, and now they're going in wildly different directions. The United States is hawkish. China's dealing with a real estate crisis. They're completely dovish. The ECB has no idea what to do. They're trying to figure out what to do with this Russia-Ukraine war, but also not wanting to be left behind by the United States. They're all moving in completely different directions. That didn't happen before 2019, 2020, because we were in a globalized world. The second example I always give is think back to the 2008 financial crisis. What was one of the first things that the U.S. Department, the, the officials at the U.S. Department of Treasury did um, when the scope of the crisis became clear? They called their buddies at the People's Bank of China and said, hey, we need to coordinate to make sure that the contagion here doesn't spin completely out of control because this is going to affect everyone. What happens now? Now, China and the United States, we, we get happy because Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden said nice things to each other, let alone you know, coordinating actual economic activity or uh, coordinating um, um, you know, global health policies in the midst of a, of a pandemic. So those are both clear signs that we're moving towards uh, moving away from globalization as a trend. But again, it's a little more nuanced than that. It's not just every man for himself. So, Jacob, in this world of more polarized, uh, uh, actually, um, you know, kind of um, poles, maybe, when it comes to globalization, rather than a full deglobalization, it's more about different poles of globalization uh, going on and uh, factions getting together. Which country or sectors do you see getting the most penalized because they relied maybe on too many of these different poles? Where do you see the, most, the, the biggest fragilities in business models from a country perspective or from a sector perspective? I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. So everybody in some ways is equally affected. It's more about which industries are most important for the global economy. So the reason we spend so much time on semiconductors is because semiconductors are at the heart of industry 4.0 and artificial intelligence and automation and 5G. All of the, None of that can happen if you don't have chips. So we talk about the semiconductor industry so much in the global media because of its outsides importance, but it's literally happening on just about every single supply chain you can think of. 
Uh, I bet if you if you go down from you know, who's making umbrellas versus where is food being grown all the way up to you know the the semiconductor complexity, it's happening in every single industry. Um, I think the the ones that I focus on most closely, we've already talked about the semis, and then it's energy and it's food. Um, those are two areas where um, you know the countries that have resources are making a lot of money. The countries that are dependent on imports are now looking around and trying to figure out, well, how do I ensure that I have stable access to food supply if I've been dependent on importing food from abroad? How do I make sure that I have stable access to relatively cheap energy if suddenly, say, Russia's invading a country next door and is going to cut off all my, my gas pipelines? Um, to take this back to China, this is one of the reasons I worry about China from a long-term perspective, because for most of Chinese history, there's a lot of Chinese history, China didn't have to import anything from abroad. It was the Middle Kingdom because it was literally the center of economic gravity of the world. It had everything it needed at home. In the last 20, 30 years, that's changed. Now China has to import a lot of its energy. It has to import a lot of its food. You sort of get a Japan early 1900s type scenario where now China has to invest in its military so it can defend its supply lines to these different places all around the world. So I, I wouldn't single out um, any particular industry. They're all getting affected by this trend. Um, but um, semis, food, energy, those are the big three just because of how important they are um, in the global economy and to the plans of a lot of these countries going forward. Speaking of uh, countries relying on energy <laughs> from the outside, I think we should try and move the discussion towards Europe because I know you have some very interesting views on the European energy situation. But before we get to that, I, I wanted to sort of uh, bridge the discussion from, from China to Europe because I saw a quote from uh, Emmanuel Macron, the um, French president earlier, uh, that he had hopes now that China would act as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine in the coming quarter. And he felt like that there was a bit of progress in terms of convincing China to take a more active role. What do you make of that statement? Is it a fair assessment uh, from, from the French president? Hope springs eternal with Macron. Um, he's, Macron, no joke, is one of the smartest world leaders there is. In terms of world leaders that I respect, in terms of their ability to see what's happening at a global um, level and articulate strategies and problems, He's one of the best in the democratic world. If he was as skilled a politician or as good at building consensus as he is at ident identifying some of these issues, he might actually really be a force of, of some constructive change in the world. As it is, though, he can diagnose problems, but he's never shown the ability to actually follow it through. So, I mean, France has been talking about reforming the EU since the day Macron got into office. It's even with the pandemic and the Russia-Ukraine war, he's still fighting that same battle. Um, so it's nice that he he has the right instinct. Like that's exactly what you want to do. You want China to intervene here because if you get China to to lecture Russia, then Russia really has nowhere to sell any of its commodities, and then the Russian economy really is going to tank. China's the only lifeline here. Um, so he's right in the sense that that's the weak point for Russia if your goal is to stop Russia. Um, the reason that hasn't worked is because the United States treats Russia and China the same. Russia and China are not natural allies. They even fought a border war in the 1960s. Um, from, from the Chinese perspective, Russia is just another European colonizer. Vladivostok, which, which is the base of the Russian Navy in the Pacific, that was a Chinese city until the early 1900s. I guarantee you on all those maps in China that show Taiwan as part of the People's Republic of China, Vladivostok is on those maps too. China would like those things back. So it's not a natural alliance. Um, the, the, the one ray of hope that I think Macron has right here is that you can see that China um, understands that Russia 
um, is fairly isolated, has gone beyond the pale, and is losing support in the rest of the world. And as much as China would like a strong Russia to be a counterbalance to the United States, it helps to have another um, country that is resisting the U.S.-led order to get to that multipolar world. China likes the idea of that multipolar world. I think they also understand um, that there's diminishing returns at a certain point on supporting Russia especially when Russia is bombing Ukrainian cities or when Russia is threatening to pull out of the Black Sea grain deal, which is so important to some of these emerging market economies that are dependent on food. So there's definitely the opportunity there to do something with China. The thing with China is you have to give them something that they want. You have to make it worth their while. And the only way you're going to do that is if you get the U.S. to pull back on some of these trade restrictions and tariffs and things like that. And uh, Macron has a high opinion of French power if he thinks that the French can do anything to, to achieve that goal. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, direct, and maintain total visibility into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Think of Curve guys like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines your cards into one. And effectively, it will help you maximize your rewards. You'll also earn a 1% cashback on everything you buy for the next six months. And if you're trying to get on top of your cash flows, Curve is also very useful because being one unique credit card, it consolidates multiple credit cards and multiple cash flows into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve cash to be credited to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link and making your first purchase. So go have a look at tmtf.link slash curve. Yes. So guys, the referral link to get the $20 in Curve cash back is tmtf.link slash curve. Jacob. I now need to talk about Europe and complete the transition that Andreas did between um, China and all the way to Europe now. And I have a main question. How much firewood do I need to buy for the winter? That depends. Do you, li do you like fires? I mean, it's, it's a personal Well, question. if I have no gas, then I have no alternative. Of course, it's a provocative question, but you, you see where I'm going. I, I do. Well, where, first of all, where in Europe are you? It kind of matters. That is a very valid question. I am in the Netherlands, but I would like you to, or actually half the time here, half the time in Italy, but I would like you to cover a bit the uh, entire continent, if you can, from a gas perspective this winter. Absolutely. In the Netherlands, you'll be fine. And I think in Italy, you'll be fine too. I'd stay away from the Czech Republic or Slovakia or Hungary for the next couple of months in the case of a cold snap. Um, look, I, I was joking with some of my colleagues at Cognitive Investments earlier this morning because I was very, very contrarian about this European energy crisis for months. Um, and, you know, I got the Russia-Ukraine war wrong. I got, I've gotten the European gas, quote-unquote, crisis right so far, uh, so much so that, like, my spidey sense is going off. Should I pivot now and say, oh, but now I'm really worried about what's going on? No, when you, when you just sit down and look at the data, like, there is enough natural gas out there for Europe to get the natural gas that it needs, assuming there is not a colder-than-normal winter. Uh, and I should also say, you know, winter can it, you know, we can talk about the entire season. We also need there not to be like a super cold snap for one week. If you got really, really, really low temperatures for a week, that can also pose a difficult challenge. But if you go back and look at the number of heating degree days over winters for the past 30, 40 years, I forget what the exact number is. Um, this is available on Eurostat. There have been four years, roughly, where there were more sort of heating degree days than normal. So we're already dealing with a fairly small sample set of, of when you're going to need sort of those 
increase energy supplies. Um, another canary in the coal mine for me was, I think it was, it was either in August or September, the German government came out and said, due to the impending you know, European energy crisis, we will be turning off the lights on the historic buildings in Berlin and other cities. And I stopped and I was like, well, first, you haven't turned off the lights yet. Like what other fluff can we cut from, um, you know, European energy production that doesn't actually affect the economy, but that would re would reduce um, energy demand in Europe itself. So for all those reasons, I was always skeptical of the European energy crisis with the proviso that if the weather surprised me and weather has a way of doing that, I'm, I'm recording here in New Orleans, we, we have a first... Uh, a first-hand relationship with how weather can really mess up your plans. But as long as the weather was relatively normal, I felt pretty good that Europe was going to be able to emerge out of this unscathed. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be problems. If you look at which countries are dependent on natural gas and which countries have energy-intensive industries that require um, you know, higher levels of energy at an industrial at an industrial level, like I said, it's those central to Eastern European economies. It's Slovakia, it's Hungary, it's the Czech Republic. I'm less worried about the Germans just because the Germans have a lot of money. I mean, I think what, it's a 200 billion euro uh, plan for the, for the energy industry going into the winter this year. Germany can afford that. What's all that austerity you've been preaching to the Greeks with the Germans if you can't actually you know, use the billions of euros when you actually have the crisis? This is kind of vindication for all of the German austerity. They can absolutely afford it. Um, the countries that are really going to have a crisis are countries like Pakistan or other countries in Asia that can't spend the amount of money that the Europeans can spend um, for you know, natural gas on the spot market and who are going to be up the creek without a paddle, as we say here in, in the southeastern United States. The last thing I'll say um, is that I think when it came to the energy crisis, um, and this is where it becomes more about politics, I think, than just simple supply and demand, I think that this crisis is going to lead um, to a real change in thinking in Europe about how they're going to approach energy going forward. Russia turned out to be a bad bet. The countries that bet on Russia, they're going to have a rough couple of years. But in general, um, I think you're going to see Europe now say, hey, we've been paying more expensive rates for natural gas, even from Russia, for years relative to the, to the United States uh, and some of our other competitors. We also haven't really lost market share over that same time period. So if we can really build up um, you know, solar and wind capacity, if we can double down on hydrogen and maybe retrofitting some of these natural gas pipelines for hydrogen, if we can get over our aversion to nuclear uh, and use that as a safe renewable, I mean, there are ways to do it. And you can even get to a point maybe by the end of the decade where energy prices are, are deflationary. So despite all my optimism, like it, it was always going to be a rough winter, it's going to be a rough two years. But if Europe can get through the next two years, and I think they can afford it, and here's the real hinge, if politically the bloc coheres and actually works together so that this doesn't happen to them again, could be a major transformation for Europe. For me, my forecast is going to live and fall based on where are we at in two years. If, if Europeans are still scrambling on the spot market in a winter in two years, I'm wrong. What I'm expecting to see is a massive surge of investment in infrastructure and better um, relations between European states such that they can actually start driving down the cost of energy for the bloc um, as a group. And I can add that what matters for, for financial markets is the rate of change. So if we have peaked on natural gas prices, and I say if we have peaked, then even high prices at slightly lower prices than what we saw a quarter ago could actually be seen as positive news, right? Uh, <clears throat> but I, I wanted to move the uh, discussion to a, um, a region that we've discussed a lot on the macro trading floor this year, much more than we usually do, 
uh, namely Latin America. Uh, and the reason is that <clears throat> I've personally been uh, long both Brazil and Mexico. Uh, I've, I consider both countries true inflation fighters, so I basically loved the idea of being long Latin America in an inflation crisis. I know, Jacob, that you have at least sounded upbeat on Brazil after the elections a few weeks ago, Lula, the next president from 1st of January, not necessarily the president that the market hoped for, but what do you make of the prospects for Latin America post the election here in Brazil? I'll problematize things a little bit for you there, which is Mexico is part of Latin America, but as a geopolitical entity, it's really more part of North America. So as, as the United States goes, Mexico will go. As uh, former President uh, Porfirio Diaz said, you know, Mexico, uh, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States, that's still true and will be true for a long time. Uh, I'm with you on Brazil. I've been long Brazil all year. Um, kind of took some of our exposure off just because around the uncertainty of the election. But I like all of the fundamentals of Brazil. They're rich in all the resources that the rest of the world needs. Um, their only real meaningful competitor, Argentina, is a complete and total dumpster fire. I mean, th there's a lot going there um, for Brazil in ways that are um, that I really like. The other country that uh, that you're missing that um, I wouldn't have said Brazil and Mexico were at the forefront of hawkishness. It was Brazil and Chile. Um, and Chile is another country that I really like, especially because they are well positioned in terms of renewables. They've got a lot of agriculture going. Um, Chile is actually helping to build the first um, trans, uh, the, the first cable that's going to connect South America directly to Asia rather than having to send all their data up to the United States and then over across the Pacific. Um, they're doing very interesting things and in sort of becoming a data hub and um, an agri agricultural hub and, a, and an energy hub from that perspective. So there are definitely countries in Latin America I really like. There are also some, though, it's it's not a continent that was created equal. So, I mean, the political situation in Peru is absolutely ghastly. The only thing that Peru has going for it is it has a lot of these resources, so that allows it um, some stability, but I don't see any end for the political drama there in sight. Uh, Colombia's turn to the center-left has been a little more stark than I thought it was going to be, and I think you could see some problems here. Um, with Colombia in general. In some ways, the things in Latin America that make me the most excited um, are the true frontier market economies. If Cuba ever opened, if Venezuela ever just even had a modicum, like a, just, just 2% of normal governance, I mean, those are two economies that would absolutely be primed um, to, to do well. Um, and I will say this, the United States, if the United States is serious about challenging China and Russia and taking on the world and remaking supply chains, it's going to have to get over these vestigial conflicts in Venezuela and Cuba. You cannot have those weaknesses um, in your own backyard and still expect to go after China and Russia the way that it is. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity in Latin America. Not all of it is created equal, but um, Bra Brazil, I think, is the biggest one. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the market not wanting Lula to be president. Oh, like what, what you wanted the guy who thought the COVID vaccine was going to turn you into a crocodile. Like it really, it really doesn't matter who the individual is. Like Brazil is just has so many good fundamentals on paper that I think are going to win out. And the nice thing about what happened in the Brazilian elections, like we can focus on Lula, the center right won most of the Congress, like legislatively, this is not 2003. Lula's an old man now too. He's not going to be able to just come in and do whatever he wants to do. He's facing, uh, in, the, in the words of the Bolsonaro supporters, the fiercest opposition in the history of Brazil. And that should be a good thing. That means a stalemate and Brazil's strengths, I think, will win out. Jacob, this has been a really good interview. I'm really impressed and happy to uh, have you had here on the Macro Trading Floor as a guest. To conclude, uh, as always on the Macro Trading Floor, we ask for one or maybe two 
actionable investment opportunities. So do you have something up your sleeve that you want to share with our audience from that perspective? Yeah, I don't have it fully formed yet, but I'll tell you what I'm working on. And maybe if you know you guys or your listener base can tell me uh, ways to help express it. But um, I really think we need to start thinking in terms of Russian weakness. And what does it look like if Russia comes apart at the seams? Is it a Russian revolution, sort of end, uh, you know, middle of World War I type scenario? Is it more like the 1800s with Russian warlords running around and different components of Russia coming apart at the seams? And I say all that because the country that I have focused most on recently and that I think is most interesting for expressing this is Poland. Uh, and within Europe right now, I mean, Polish equities have been screaming for the past couple of weeks. There's a broader sort of trade with, you know, the pessimism on Europe has evaporated a little bit, but Poland's doing better than everybody else. And I think Poland's doing better than everybody else, because if you look at a macro level geopolitically, when Russia is weak, usually means good things for Poland. We forget that in the 17th century, when Russia was extremely weak, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was the largest country in Europe and one of its richest. Um, it really came apart because its economy was based on um, agricultural commodities and the development of you know, uh, modern ways of planting, eventually fertilizer really um, drove down the price of food and it was a very agricultural economy, so the economy didn't do so well. And then they got absorbed by a stronger Russia and Prussia around it. Uh, but I, what, what I would say is think about what happens if Russia is off the board? What does that mean for a country like Poland? Uh, what does that mean for countries in the Balkans where suddenly Serbia is looking around for a new friend because Russia isn't there in the same way? Another country that is, is going to benefit from Russian weakness is Turkey. I was already bullish on Turkey, even more bullish now on Turkey, because suddenly if they don't have to worry about Russia, they have a freer hand in places like North Africa, um, the Balkans, things like that. Central Asia, it's a little bit early. Um, but, you know, I like some of those countries, too. Like Uzbekistan is another pure frontier economy where you're seeing little whispers of reform even before the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so th those are all areas that I would explore. But the one I'm most serious about right now is Poland, because, I mean, Poland historically does well when Russia is weak. And if anybody's going to help rebuild Ukraine after the war, it's those Polish construction companies who are lining up right now and telling everybody who will listen, we're ready to help rebuild Ukraine tomorrow. Just give us the contracts and we're ready to go. So... Not quite actionable, but hopefully it's at least um, I've given your listeners a dartboard to start shooting some things at. And if you figure out the right way to express the trade, uh, get at me. I, I'd, I'd love your, uh, your insight. <laughs> uh, Jacob, I'm actually happy to hear this. Um, a few months ago, I also suggested that the pessimism surrounding the European energy complex was getting too bizarre. Um, and one way to express that with the high beta was to belong Polish equities. And they are slowly but surely starting to perform now. Uh, so thank you for... <laughs> endorsing that indirectly at least here jacob it was a huge pleasure hosting you at the macro trading floor um, finally if our audience wants to find out more about cognitive investments or you as a strategist where do you um, where, where do they go yeah, so you can check us out at cognitive.investments is our website. Uh, I host my own podcast that I hope you guys will, will join as well at some point called Cognitive Dissidents. You can find it on our website. Um, you can email me directly at jacob at cognitive.investments. Um, and because I'm a sadomasochist, I'm also on Twitter. So it's at Jacob Schapp. Uh, for as long as Twitter goes, who knows? It might not be here tomorrow. So <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> jacob, a really warm thank you from my end and Andreas. So this has been a very good interview. Really a pleasure to have you here and people go check out Jacob, a wealth of knowledge. Cheers. Thanks, guys. I was really impressed with the guest of the week, Jacob Shapiro, an excellent geopolitical strategist. He's not exactly a macro trader, but still, Andreas, he came up with a couple of pretty actionable uh, medium to long term investment ideas. 
which are effectively uh, a very contrary and long in Polish equities, if you ask me, so from Poland, and the other one is in Brazil, which is less contrary and has been quite a solid macro bet for the entire year. But Jacob thinks that Latin America, particularly Brazil, is well positioned to do pretty well for 2023 too. So what do you make of his um, thesis, Andreas? Very interesting, I should say, across the board in geopolitics and the investment ideas as well. I mean, he's certainly short Russia <laughs> uh, in the way he thinks, right? And um, that, that, that's an interesting viewpoint um, since Russia has been clearly on top of things from, a, from an economic perspective so far. Um, but I guess he's absolutely right that if China starts moving towards a mediator role, uh, starts taking a, a stance in this conflict, then Russia is screwed um, because it's essentially their only big client left, right? Um, and his point was that Poland is in a good spot to sort of utilize um, such a scenario. Uh, and I would tend to agree with that assessment. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I have it as my base case, but I'm actually positive Poland uh, for a number of reasons uh, myself as well. Um, so I actually think that currently the at least the hard data out of Germany is much better than feared, much better. Uh, let me just put emphasis on that. If you look at in inventory to order ratios, they, they don't point to any substantial downturn. Uh, it can of course change, but I mean, for now, it looks better than feared, also given that energy prices have come down ahead of the winter. Um, so. It may not be full Armageddon in Europe as we feared a couple of months ago. <laughs> Let me put it like that. And one thing I've noted, and I've backtested this for, for a couple of decades, is that Poland uh, is essentially a very smart bet if you think that we will see an upside surprise to economic data in Germany. Uh, so it's, it's essentially a, a high beta bet on the German industry uh, by the end of the day. So you can either do that bet via Polish equities. Uh, there's um, an ETF called ePoll. Uh, I've been in and out of that a couple of times already this year. Uh, and then uh, you could obviously, obviously also do it uh, directly at the Polish slotty because when Germany performs, the Polish slotty gains versus the euro. Um, yeah. So Poland is basically a high beta uh, version of uh, German manufacturing and industrial yeah. production in Europe, which makes a lot of sense, uh, as we have also outsourced quite a lot of our manufacturing work and supply chains to Poland over the last five to seven years in Europe. So it makes a lot of sense for Poland to behave like that, which Andres makes me think of something that you highlighted a, a couple of weeks ago, which is you never trade against your base case, you trade against what's priced in. And at mm. some point, complete Armageddon was priced in in Europe. <laughs> and uh, by the way, it's getting a bit cold, especially in the northern of Europe. Yeah, it was so terrible I, here yesterday. So <laughs> I, I don't know about the gas usage, but now, uh, jokes apart, you need to be a meteorologist to come up with your uh, projections between now and March for how much Europe is going to suffer. So uh, the Armageddon thing there was priced in a way that even a mild positive surprise would have actually delivered results, which was what had what happened but uh, Jacob was discussing as well the medium term implications of this gas crisis in your this energy crisis in Europe mm. and he was basically saying look if we manage in Europe to get uh, together around uh, an infrastructure project it's actually going to be positive for Europe over the next three to five years mm. and so he was talking about infrastructure investments in Europe and the ability for us to rebuild a bit our energy chains and all of that What's your take on that as a medium-term theme? 
I think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, if we cannot stick together in this kind of environment, then we can never do it. Um, so I guess the straightforward conclusion here is to be long the good old brown and dusty industrial economy in Europe, because it may, I mean, what's needed um, to turn around the tide on this? Um, well, essentially, good old natural resources, right? Mm -hmm. um, copper, um, yeah, pipelines um, in, in, in major scale. Uh, so, I, I mean, it is, to me, still a very decent scenario to look into if you're um, if you add long commodity exposure overall to your portfolio or long industrial exposure via equities. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that they will perform super well into a potential recession next year, mm -hmm. but I like it as a structural trade. Yeah, that's the uh, a bit of the macro cycle and the time horizon problem, right? I mean, you're looking for something that potentially could turn out decent over the next three to five years because of the need for investments and the incentive schemes from policymakers to throw money at these industries effectively. But at the same time, you're looking into a likely economic slowdown where generally cyclical commodities and industrial don't do particularly well. So that's a bit the crux as well of a macro investor. What's your time frame? How do you manage risks around those? Um, talking about time frame, uh, one uh, thing that I noticed um, that I like in the bond market is the following. People are asking me, why don't you just get long bonds? If your thesis is that there's going to be a sharp nominal growth slowdown, bonds generally perform very well. A bit of a problem with that is that core inflation, as you just said, Andreas, will remain sticky. And so Powell will basically basically pin front-end yields to where they are. I mean, you can't fight the Fed because they have a very strong influence on where front-end rates are. So on, on a one to two-year fixings, one to two-year rates, it's going to be very difficult for you to get ahead of the Fed. So there is a bit of a time problem there. And the curve, indeed, is flattening further because the back end of the bond market is reflecting the fact that the, as the Fed pins yield higher, it keeps condi conditions restrictive later on, um, nominal growth is going to slow down even further. But, you know, the curve is already negative, you know, IS, uh, negative 100 basis point between two stands. So, you know, there is a little bit of, of a risk reward from there deciding to go long, the long end, given power would pin front end. But if you look at uh, what the option market is pricing for 2024, mid of 2024, so I'm taking a lot of time here for my macro thesis to unfold. There is only a 10% chance that Fed funds rate will be below 1.75% by June 2024. So 1.75% in uh, 18 months means we're going to be cutting 300 basis points in 18 months. That's a lot, obviously, especially because the first six months of, of, of 2023, you have to basically cancel them from your thesis. That the Fed is never going to cut over the next six months. But then you have 12 months for 300 basis points. And if I look at 2001, that's really not anything spectacular. If you get a proper recession, it might happen. And the market is only pricing in a 10% probability. So that kind of option play, uh, call spreads on euro dollar, call spreads on software futures, stuff that is listed, it's easily tradable also from a retail perspective. You don't really pay much. And if the macro thesis unfolds, you're looking at payoffs, which can be pretty convex. I like that as a backbone trade to have in the book. You spend a bit of premium. And if nominal growth comes down tumbling, the investor expectations will need to adjust to that and price a higher probability that the Fed will go through a cutting cycle later on. That's my top pitch at the moment. And I mean, the simple explanation behind that trade is that 
if the Fed gets going in one direction, they typically get going with more than just a few pinches of hikes or cuts, right? Um, so fair, fair enough. Uh, I, I, I like the idea. Um, but let, let me throw in um, an interesting viewpoint. I am starting to convince myself that um, it makes a ton of sense to be long euro dollar. <laughs> uh, yes, and I, I mean, this is uh, a widow maker. Uh, I recall from my, my time traveling hedge funds uh, as a sell side strategist, every time I brought up a slide saying euro dollar is going higher, <laughs> they stopped caring. <laughs> I mean, it, because it, at the time it was basically just the worst trade to um, to try and pitch to people uh, who tried over and over on, on, on that trade in, in many years, actually. Uh, but in, in any case, what, what I see right now uh, is a pretty interesting pattern unfolding in Chinese data, mm -hmm. suggesting that uh, the both the credit impulse, but also the lending pace is starting to accelerate a little bit. Uh, and even if China is not as important for the global cycle as it was in 2019, I actually consider it interesting uh, given the interlinks to the German economy. Uh, so, I mean, right now we all agree that Germany will be in a recession. Fair enough, uh, it can get worse uh, for the next quarter or two. But then I actually um, convinced myself that there is a pretty decent chance um, that the Euro will start gaining from a rebound in China, uh, probably ahead of uh, the rebound in the Western world, uh, because China can only rebound from a zero uh, COVID policy, right? We've seen that in the West. As soon as you start moving slightly, but slowly but surely towards opening, I'm not saying that they're going to open with a bang, but just slowly but surely moving towards reopening, it matters a lot for the economic momentum. You like to be contrarian, don't you, yes. my friend? <laughs> so, um... I want to take the opportunity to say, guys, that if you enjoyed this kind of macro conversation, trade ideas, and all you know, all what we do on the macro trading floor, uh, both Andreas and I actually do much more with clients on a bespoke basis. So both of us have products. I have products that I just launched on the Macro Compass. I also do bespoke uh, consultations with people. Um, if you want to see what I do, uh, you go on my Substack page of the Macro Compass in the About. There is an entire explanation of you know what the tiers are and what do I do. You can send me an email, themacrocompass at gmail.com, and you can do the same with Andreas, by the way. Yeah. And I mean, feel very free to ask for both of us at the same time. Um, we have quite a few of such arrangements in place already. Uh, so... If you want the band playing together, then um, feel free to contact us. Uh, we, we do everything from asset allocation consulting to um, investment committee meetings, etc., on a monthly basis. So, um, yeah. Andreas, which email they can send, they can uh, reach you at? Yeah, and, and this, this is why I always hate my name, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, the mail is Andreas Steno at stenoresearch.dk. Okay. Yeah. For me, it's the macro compass at gmail.com. Guys, this was just uh, a way to say that if you appreciate what we do, there is more actually uh, that both I personally, Andreas personally, or potentially together could do for you. Enough with the pitch, mate. I think we have bothered yeah. people enough uh, for this episode. Do you have anything else to add apart from the fact that 
tonight I'm going to eat a pizza in the Netherlands. Please, just, it's going to be a tough experience. I, 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 it just strikes me that it's pretty weird that we do a commercial in two t-shirts, but <laughs> yeah. never mind. Uh, I wore enough suit and ties and went yeah, with enough too. investment committees and board meetings in my life. Um, I'm not here for the suits anymore, mate. I don't know about you. <laughs> no, me neither. Um, great pleasure again this week, Elf. Um, my name is Andreas Steenwen, and uh, we look forward to sending to you next Sunday again. Yeah.